put really good. We all Zoom fit, so we're not scared okay, uh, to listen for okay. a long time. Right. And well, Rosie, Moore, Rosie Moore, who's on the call, she's done a ladies' breakfast where she talked for an hour, um, which was fabulous, and everyone listened. So okay. the, the chicks at Christchurch Madrama are hardcore. They can listen. Okay. So Excellent. don't be yeah, don't be shy. And the Aussie accent, right, you know, we love it. We love it so much. So okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So also just a bit of introduction to Jenny. She is um, uh, working at Sydney Missionary and Bible College, Dean of Women there. She's been there for for a long time, more than 20 years. And um, before that was a air hostess on Qantas, uh, chicken or beef was her, her strong line. And uh, yeah. <laughs> before that, she was a nurse. So Jenny is a a competent woman unfortunately the lord um steered her to full-time christian work and many people around the world have enjoyed her ministry um she has taught all over the place and got very well educated in the states so yeah so jenny it really is great to have you with us and um we look forward to how the lord will use you this morning uh, in this Thank great you. book that um, we yeah. don't hear from enough. So our mm. church is busy doing Job at the moment. Okay. So, right. <laughs> yeah. so we're in, the, in the, um, that neck of the woods with the, You're in the, the genre. Literature. We're in yeah, the wisdom exactly. literature. Um, so let me pray. And then um, Rafael will read. And then we'll hand over to you. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. Thank you so much that we can meet uh, remotely. Mm. Thank you for the great privilege of being in Christ. Thank you for Mm. the work that you've done in our hearts, that you've called us to yourself, and we give you grateful thanks for that. Thank you that you've not left us to ourselves, but that you've rescued us and given us your word, uh, given us your spirit, and given us each other. So we thank you for all of those gifts. And um, this morning, thank you so much that we can meet uh, to hear your word taught. And Mm -hmm. I do give you so much thanks for Jenny and for her influence in my life and um, in so many other people's lives. Thank you for the gifts you've given her. Thank you for the hard work she's put in to equip herself to teach uh, competently. So we thank you for that. And we pray that this morning, as we sit under your word, that um, our hearts might be changed, our minds Mm -hmm. might be changed. And we might be um, growing in knowing who you are and Mm. growing in holiness. So, Lord, please, Mm. will you use this time? Uh, Thank you for this great um, ability to meet like this remotely. Mm. And we pray that uh, all the technology might run well. And, yeah, Lord, please be at work in our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Amen. Okay, Rafael Ware, so you are reading for us. If you can just tell us where you're reading from, just so we make sure we're on the right track. Um, good morning, everyone. I'm reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8, uh, until chapter 6, verses 12. I think I'm on the right page. <laughs> you are. You are indeed. Okay, um, can I just start then? All right. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and they are yet higher 
ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivate the fields. He, he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, where he eats little, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone who also, everyone also, to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God doesn't give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has a wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and is striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known that man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Which... For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun?
this is the word of God. Right, over to me, Kate. Thank you. Thank you, Rafiwe, for reading that. Um, it's as, as Rafiwe was, re was reading that, I wonder what you were thinking. There's some tricky parts in this chunk. And just by way of um, uh, the reason why I chose this passage, it's actually part of three talks that I've given in other places. And it is quite a chunk. And I chose it because uh, there are many themes in Ecclesiastes, including uh, the focus on money and power. And so this was a chunk that looked at that. So that was why I, I chose that as part of a, um, a three-talk series. Um, but anyway, let's have a think about what uh, these verses are saying. Um, Kate mentioned uh, about, I think you mentioned COVID bodies or, uh, you know, just, I don't know about you guys, but but here as we emerge from lockdown, um, a lot of people are very conscious that they've put on a few COVID kilos um, you know, we're all a little bit thicker, perhaps, uh, a little bit more sluggish. I love the fact that um, some of you have done, what, 8K walk before before uh, this breakfast meeting. Um, but what I've also noticed is that there, at least here, I don't know about whether you've noticed this, there are a whole lot of shows and, and ads about weight loss programs that are appearing now. They often appear at the beginning of summer as well. And I must admit that when it comes to TV shows that talk about health or talk about losing weight, I'm a bit of a sucker for those um, because I have put on weight during COVID and I, and I do love my food. I do love chocolate. And uh, so I'm always looking for that silver bullet that's going to help me to, you know, get rid of some of that weight and to be healthy. So I have a little bit of a radar for those kinds of shows that help me to think, you know, in a more healthy way. Now, one of those shows I noticed a while ago uh, was one which was the focus on um, body age versus real age. In other words, uh, you might have lived a certain number of years. So for me, it's 58. But what does my body say I am? How old does my body think I am? That's a bit of a scary question. So this particular TV show uh, they they tracked a number of men and women who came to this huge facility, like a big warehouse, uh, and these men and women got measured. Their body fat was measured in this strange-looking pod. Uh, blood pressure was measured, cholesterol. They had a whole lot of other blood tests, a stress test. Their sleep was measured and so on, a huge battery of tests. And all these tests were designed to measure their body age as opposed to their chronological age. So I was loving this show. I thought this was so interesting. The cameras followed one particular woman as she went through the whole process. And then with the, all the tests completed, they led her to this massive screen. And one by one, the results were revealed. So her blood pressure was revealed and her body fat percentage and her BMI and all these different results came up on the screen and the last result to go up was the age of her body based on the test so up went her chronological age 54 and then on the screen this number started to go up it started to click up to 56 and 58 and 62 and 67, 69. When was it going to stop? And finally, it stopped at 72. Yikes. And she stood there 
as you would, visibly shaken. And the two health professionals who were standing either side of her uh, knew she was shaken by these results. This was not good. And they said to her, you know, what does this mean for you? Or, Or what will you do? And she was sort of gathering her thoughts. And then she said, you know what? I'm definitely going to think about this. Think about it. I mean, what was there to think about? I mean, the evidence was right there on the screen, right in front of us. So as I was watching this show, I was really surprised by her response um, because, I mean, all the the obvious and objective evidence was there. I think from memory, I I spoke to her through the TV and I I said, called her an idiot, Um, (laughs) which is a bit harsh. And it was harsh because I think how she responded is how we all can respond when it comes to health. I mean, I know, you know, I know that if I was to say to someone, you know, how can I get healthier? I don't know what they're going to say. I know they're going to say, well, you need to get more sleep and you need to eat less food and you need to exercise more and you need to think about stress in your life and so on. I know that. I mean, it's not necessarily new information. The point is we've got to do more than just think about it. Uh, there is a response to that objective evidence that is before us. Well, what about when we look a little deeper than our outward health? What about when we look at our own lives as followers of Jesus? What do we think about when we think about uh, what the world says and the evidence that the world gives us about success or satisfaction or relationships? And then the evidence that we get in God's word and being in relationship with Jesus, that also informs us about satisfaction and success and relationships and so on, where it's found and where it's not found. So when we look at the evidence before us, evidence that we are are familiar with, I suspect, how are we going to respond? Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we come to this chunk of Ecclesiastes. And as I mentioned earlier, um, I want to give you a little bit of context just briefly because, to be honest, I think the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that is greatly loved by people because it speaks into our world in such a, a natural way. But it's also one that I think is hard to understand. So as Rafilwe was reading you know, there's all these tricky verses in there, I think. I get a bit intimidated by Ecclesiastes, the book. Anyway, having said that, I just want to give you a little bit of a sense of just a very big, brief, big picture of Ecclesiastes. So firstly, the word Ecclesiastes means teacher or preacher. So if you go to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll read about the words of the teacher. That's Ecclesiastes. And basically the whole book is the teacher kind of doing a research project, if you like, looking at life. He uses terms like under the sun, life under the sun, and ask questions about the meaning of life. And you'll probably know that when people mention the word Ecclesiastes, others will say meaningless, meaningless, because that is uh, part of the, the picture of Ecclesiastes. But it is really asking questions about the meaning of life and, and the place of things like pleasure and work and time and 
relationships and life and death and poverty and riches. And then reading between the lines, there are questions like, why are things the way that they are? It doesn't seem fair. Or how do we live well and wisely under the sun? So that's kind of broad strokes, a picture of Ecclesiastes. And then if you go through each of the chapters, you'll see different themes that come out. So I mentioned earlier that in the passage that we're looking at this morning, the teacher is focusing on issues of wealth, riches, power. And he says, and this is another word that is throughout Ecclesiastes, he says, Havel, that's the, the Hebrew word, and the translation is vanity. And it pops up all the way through Ecclesiastes, but depending on where it pops up will determine its meaning because there are other ways of translating the word. So it can mean fleeting or transient. It can mean mist. It can mean meaningless. It can mean futile. So when we read the word, context is all important. Now here in this chapter, with themes of wealth and power, the word havel or vanity is actually meaning futility and vanity. So when it's translated vanity, I think that's right. The teacher says it is vanity to seek satisfaction in wealth. That is kind of a, uh, you know, a nutshell sentence for the whole chunk. But the question is why? In an old covenant context where wealth was seen as a blessing from God, why is he saying it is vanity or it is futile to seek satisfaction in wealth? Well, what we're going to do is work through chunk by chunk of this part of Ecclesiastes with reasons why he says it is vanity or futile or havel to seek satisfaction in wealth. So firstly, we see in verses 8 to 9, and again, commentators, it's, it's always very interesting when you read, uh, these are uh, some of the most tricky verses in the Bible. And I think, oh, really? So these are some of the trickiest verses in the Bible. So I'm going to just try and give you, just without going into the details, I think the gist of these verses. Here in, in verses 8 to 9, the teacher is focusing on political oppression, government officials, injustice, Oppression of the poor. It's funny, isn't it? There's nothing new under the sun. We read that and we don't go, really? We read that and we go, yep. And the teacher is, is basically saying that. He's saying when you see it, don't be surprised. That's life. I remember growing up and there was a saying that people would use kind of tongue in cheek when something happened that was surprising and and they would say, well, I was shocked and stunned and not a little surprised, kind of overstating the point. When we see oppression and injustice, we can say, oh, I was shocked and stunned and not a little surprised and the teacher says, don't be. Don't be surprised. That is life under the sun. He's not saying it's okay, but he is saying that's life. And the point is, therefore, don't put your hope there in, in the wealth and the power that comes in those structures. Don't put your hope there. It is havel. It is vanity, futility. Next, 
the teacher shows the vanity, the futility of putting your trust in wealth in verses 10 to 12. And he says, because it doesn't bring any ultimate satisfaction. Let me just read these verses to refresh us. So he goes on to say, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he or she, for that matter, who loves wealth with their income. This also is vanity, havel. When goods increase, they increase to eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a labourer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, there's a lot there, again, that can be kind of confusing, but I think what is plain here is that uh, the point is that those who love money will not be satisfied. It doesn't satisfy. It's like that Rolling Stones proverb, I can't get no satisfaction. That's what the teacher is saying here. Living for wealth, living for riches in the end will not satisfy. Now, again, I think we're a little bit like that lady, or at least I am, looking at the screen and I'm nodding away and I'm going, yep. But I wonder whether our hearts betray us. I wonder what our hearts say about looking in terms of money and wealth and riches to satisfy us. Good to just keep checking our hearts. The teacher says with the increase of money and the increase of goods, verse 11, comes the increase of consumption and then the need to keep providing more and more and that's stressful. So verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? There is a never-ending demand and a desire to keep up with that demand. When I read those verses, I have this picture. I don't know if this happens with you guys, but I'm sure it does. Uh, At our supermarkets, we've got Woolies and Coles. They're our major supermarkets. And uh, if you go in a busy time, you know, pre-COVID probably, uh, you might see at certain times in the day, long lines of of people with with trolley stacked up and sometimes if I'm standing in that line with the trolley stacked and people in front of me with stacked trolleys and behind and I look at that poor old that poor thing who's doing the checking out what we call the checkout chick she she and packing and if she was to look up to that trolley that she's just done there's another 10 and then in another half hour, she looks up, there's another 10. It never ends. I used to think, that must be so stressful that it's never ending. And that's kind of the picture here in verse 11. It's never ending. Now, by contrast, verse 12, we have this picture of sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether they eat little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The worker, contrasted with the owner, can sleep, that is, no stress, because he has less of, a, of the responsibility that comes with wealth, but the wealthy with full stomach and perhaps indigestion doesn't sleep. Now, by the way, uh, wisdom literature tend to paint a very black and white picture of things. There's sometimes no nuance. But the point is, the reality is, and this is what I think the teacher is saying here, is that the human condition, the human heart craves more just a little bit more because i think in our hearts we think 
that if we get whatever it is that we don't have and we want, then we will have satisfaction. It makes me think of a movie that was out a few years ago called All the Money in the World. I don't know if any of you saw that. It was a true story about the kidnapping of J.P. Getty, one of the richest men in the world, the kidnapping of his grandson. And he, that is J.P. Getty, being the richest man in the world, was asked for a ransom. And the amazing thing is that he refused to pay the ransom because he didn't think he had enough money. And one of his workers, one of the the men who was advising him, was just flabbergasted and said, but how much money do you need to feel secure? And his answer was more. But that's the human condition kicking in. Appetites never satisfied, always looking for a little bit more. And again, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we keep on accumulating. We keep on wanting more. We keep thinking that it will bring satisfaction. We get what we think will bring satisfaction. It doesn't, so we look for more. And what comes with that is stress, lack of sleep, and more cravings. Teacher says, that's life. That is reality. Don't put your trust in wealth. And so, again, when we're thinking about that screen with that evidence, we're looking up. How are we going to respond? Well, perhaps we'll think about it. Keep thinking about it as we come to the next part where the evidence is building. Another reason why it is vanity or havel to put our trust in wealth. And this reason, verses 13 to 17, is because it doesn't last. Let me just read uh, these verses. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. So in these verses, the the teacher is writing about a grievous evil. Now, what's he referring to? Well, in this context, the grievous evil is not necessarily the action of hoarding wealth. The grievous evil that he's talking about here is the losing of it and having nothing. It's literally, the words are literally sickening evil, and it's it's referring to a miserable outcome rather than a moral evil. In other words, what he's saying here what he's describing here is it's like he's saying it's a real bummer. And what is this real bummer? It is losing the losing of the wealth that he had. Verse 14. Having nothing. Nothing to pass on to his kids. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So he's saying 
this grievous evil is he came with nothing and he's going to leave with nothing. And it's a little bit like people on those game shows, you know, where they're deciding about risking everything that they've won for a potentially greater win. And they say, well, you know, yes, I'm going to risk it all. I came with nothing and I'll leave with nothing. In other words, I've got nothing to lose. But the teacher says, this is a grievous evil. This is a miserable outcome. This is a real bummer. All the toil of work and you end up with exactly nothing. No profit, no gain. And again, this is another theme that runs through Ecclesiastes of profit versus gain versus gift. And the result, verse 17, not a pretty picture. Eating in darkness, the teacher writes, with much vexation and sickness and anger. Not a very pretty pretty picture at all. It's actually quite pathetic. It it reminds me of another wealthy man who died in the 1970s, Howard Hughes. I don't know if you know that name. He was apparently one of the most financially successful individuals in the world in his day. He had it all. But later in life, he became fearful of losing his wealth. He became known for his eccentric behavior and his reclusive lifestyle. And he ended his days living behind locked doors on his own, literally eating in the darkness, paranoid, fearful. Teacher says, do you want to know about life under the sun? You might work really hard and you'll build up your assets. You might be in a position to buy a beautiful home in the suburbs of Johannesburg. You might be in a position as you build up to uh, save for your children and provide for their education. You might even have enough to have a really lovely retirement. And then, through no fault of your own, gone. Perhaps your financial advisor was corrupt. Perhaps your superannuation fund collapses. Perhaps your bank has done the wrong thing. The teacher says, that is a real bummer. That is a grievous evil. But he says, that is life under the sun. That, that, it happens. And the point is, don't put your trust in it. Don't put your ultimate trust in it. Don't live for it. He says, that is like chasing after the wind. It is futile. It is havel. And our response Well, I'm definitely going to think about that. Well, it all feels a little bit uh, doom and gloom. And I I think Ecclesiastes, sometimes if we read it, we can read it with a tone of, oh, meaningless, meaningless. But is there another way? Is there a better way? Because let's face it, when the teacher refers to the rich, the wealthy, that's us, many of us anyway. So is the point of these verses in Ecclesiastes that we will respond or the only appropriate response is to give everything away? Is that really the bottom line application for what the teacher is saying? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it may be, but not necessarily. And as we come to the next section, which sits in this chunk from 5, 7 through to the end of chapter 6, kind of sits right in the middle. Well, it feels a bit like a break in transmission. There's a real change of tone in the flow of this particular chunk. 
it's a bit like he's saying, okay, this is what I've painted so far, but wait, there is a better way. Verses 18 to 20, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I wonder if you notice that there are words there, joy, enjoy, rejoice. That's something that we may not notice in Ecclesiastes. So here we have the teacher giving another perspective, a better way when it comes to wealth and possessions. It's kind of like the the two ways to live approach to wealth. One way, store it up, put your hope in it, only for it to be lost. Or you can enjoy it for what it is. You can see how God has blessed you with wealth and possessions, see them as gifts, not gain, from God to enjoy, but to hold loosely. And I wonder if you noticed in these three verses that God is very much in this picture. In three verses he's mentioned four times. And so the joy that we read about here is a God-centered joy. Not a joy that comes from the stuff that he is given, but a God-centered joy. The teacher reminds God's people that God is the provider. He's the provider of all that we have. And he's the one that enables his people to enjoy what he has given. And it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said. So it's not just an old covenant and Ecclesiastes thing. Uh, The Apostle Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy in Ephesus, he writes about along these lines. Don't go there. Let me just read so you can listen to 1 Timothy 6.17. And listen to the Ecclesiastes echoes. So he writes, as for the rich, now he's referring to Christians at this point. As for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, so for for us, for God's people who sit this side of the cross, God's word says again, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. See, life is not meant to be joyless. There is a joy to be had in terms of of what God has given us in our earthly possessions. It's not ungodly to enjoy what we have, but always in the context of our relationship with God, the one who provides what we need. And enjoying them for what they are, with a a God-centered joy, not a a Jenny-centered joy or a stuff-centered joy, but a God-centered joy, because that is the only joy that lasts. Well, that's the break in transmission. 
And now uh, we're back to our regular programming of Chapter 6. And we're back to Vanity, Vanity, uh, the Havel of Trusting in Wealth and that it is a problem. Why is it a problem? Chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, because you can have it all and yet still have no joy. So we've got the joy now, but he's now just say, saying that you can put your hope in all that you've got and still have no joy. So have a look at these verses. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Kind of is still the sense of having it been taken away. This is vanity, he says. It is a grievous evil, a bummer. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many lives, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it hasn't seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Here he is. He's saying you can have it all but no joy. And he says, this is an evil under the sun. It's like, you know, I don't know whether they do say it in, in Hollywood, but it feels like a Hollywood thing. You can, you've got it all, kid. And yet you are not able to find joy in it. This, the teacher writes, is vanity. A grievous evil. A real bummer. And to make his point even more stark, verses 3 to 6, the teacher paints a picture of one who is the epitome of having it all. 100 children, imagine that. Yikes. Or a long life. And for the old covenant people of God, this does describe one who's greatly blessed. Like, you know, you could say, I've got it all. But, verse 3, his soul is not satisfied with good things. What? The that he had, still he wasn't satisfied. And the picture becomes even darker when this man who supposedly had everything, is compared to a stillborn child. And the shocking bottom line here is the stillborn child is actually better off than the man who had a long life and lots of kids and yet had no joy, no rest. Wow. I mean, it's, it's very bleak and, and frustrating. It doesn't seem to make any sense, but the, the teacher is saying, that's life under the sun. That's reality. Our possessions will never bring us lasting joy without God, no matter how much stuff you have. There is no lasting joy. It is only when we keep him at the center that we experience real joy in the gifts that God may give. That's the perspective of the teacher. And it's a powerful argument. I'm definitely going to think about that one. Verses 7 to 9 tell us again about the human appetite that is never satisfied. It's like a gaping void that is the human appetite. And then we come to the last piece of evidence, verses 10 to 12, why it's vanity to trust in wealth because life under the sun is fleeting. Again, one of those big themes in Ecclesiastes. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named and it's known what man is. 
and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Again, we've got these terms that are very familiar throughout Ecclesiastes. And it feels to me like the teacher at this point, when we're thinking about this theme of wealth and riches and power, it's like he's, he's gathering up his thoughts. And he's kind of now coming to a bit of a conclusion. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it's known what man is, that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. It feels like he's saying, come on, people, this is reality. Get with the program. Don't fight it. There is one stronger than you. I wonder who that could be. God. And furthermore, the more words, verse 11, the more blah, 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 babbling with the one who is stronger actually doesn't make a difference. It's vanity. It's useless. Now, I know you guys are doing Job at the moment. This is very Job-like. Remember, Job had lots of words until he comes before the one stronger than he, and he says in chapter 42, verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand. Teacher says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man, verse 11? For who knows what is good for man while he lives a few days of his vain Havel life, that could be translated fleeting, which he passes like a shadow. But who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? That's what life is under the sun. It is fleeting. It is temporary. It is transient. It is mist-like. That's what James describes it as in James 4.14. Your life is, you're a myth that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's life. So really what the teacher is wanting people to know is to live in reality, to accept it. The teacher is showing people life as it is. The bottom line is wealth, money, riches, stuff, it's not going to do it for you. So where does that leave us? As always, we need to ask the question, so what? What does it mean to live life under the sun, S-U-N? And what does it mean to live life under the sun, S-O-N? Now, you know, when we're thinking about these verses, I suspect that not none of you are going, whoa, I hadn't thought of it like that. I suspect that none of us are surprised by what we read in these verses. We might be a bit confused by some of the verses, but generally the gist of it is, we're not surprised. You know, once we come to the New Testament, it's all there. It's reflected in Jesus' teaching, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, for example, where Jesus teaches about treasures on, treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. And basically he's saying, put your hope in that which will last. It in Paul's letters, I read from 1 Timothy before. Here's another verse, 1 Timothy 6, 5 to 10. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That sounds very Ecclesiastes-like. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So when he talks about gain, 
godliness with contentment is that is where your gain is again very ecclesiastes like and so i suspect that most if not all of us are nodding our heads in agreement saying yep we're looking at all the evidence on the screen Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." and yet i wonder if our hearts betray us well i have to confess that my heart betrays me even as i prepared this talk I find my mind being distracted by what I would like to buy or get. A friend of mine, she's resolved not to buy any, get any clothes this year. And I'm thinking, what? Because I like the idea of going shopping and buying clothes. And I see what people have in their homes and I think, oh, I want that. I find myself worrying about my superannuation. And wondering if it's going to be enough to take me into old age. Apparently it's not. So the experts tell me. Then I worry about what's to become of me when I get old and I don't have enough money. And yet God says in his word, and I feel like it's like when Jesus is being to Martha. Jenny, Jenny, you're worrying about all these things. The stuff you think you want and need, but they will not satisfy you. The fact is that whatever it is that we are looking at and reaching for that we think will make us feel better. So if it is clothes or or shoes, I'm not a shoe person, but some, some people are shoe people, that lovely apartment that someone's just bought or the furniture that someone has. I think we know it's not going to bring satisfaction, but we reach for them maybe thinking maybe this one will, and then we'll call it quits after that. How much more do we need to make ourselves feel satisfied and feel secure? Just a little bit more? The teacher says, that's futile. It's a chasing after the wind. Only God can satisfy. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? The the evidence is there. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He says, I will satisfy you. And the evidence is there in terms of God coming into this world in the flesh. Jesus Christ, who came into this world. He lived and he died and he was raised to life so that we can have life in all its fullness, all its satisfaction. Now, I suspect, again, that you're nodding away thinking, yep, well, what does it actually look like? Well, you know, when when we finish up this morning and, and you head out into the rest of the day and I prepare for bed and think about the rest of the weekend and next week, what does it actually look like? Well, here are a few suggestions broadly and then more specifically. When we think about what we're reaching out for to bring satisfaction, broadly it means reaching for him, the one stronger than me, the one stronger than you, but the one who is also good and powerful and loving and the one who knows you and knows what you need and loves you and gave his son to die for you so that you can have true satisfaction in him now 
and for the life to come. And when you feel the pull of the world and your heart telling you that, yes, yes, but I also need this, whatever it is that you think is going to bring you satisfaction, it means praying and asking the spirit who dwells in your heart to remind you of all that you already have in Jesus. And how do we keep seeing the evidence? How do we make sure that we are having the evidence of what God has done in mind? It means sticking close to God and walking with him daily. So grabbing your Bibles, reading it daily, meditating on his word, and allowing his truths to, to trickle down from our heads into our hearts so that we will love him more and trust him more in terms of what we have and who we are. There was that lady, there she was, standing in front of the screen and all her health statistics came up. She looked at the objective facts and she said, I will definitely think about that. We stand and we look up and we look at the cross of Christ. And when we look at the cross of Christ, we are reminded of all that we have and all that God has done so that we can have true satisfaction. And my prayer for us this morning is that we will do do more than just think about it. I'm going to pray for us as we allow these things to uh, settle in our hearts and our minds. Father, we thank you for uh, this time and we thank you, Lord, for very brief, well, maybe it wasn't so brief, but some time in in your word and, and in Ecclesiastes in particular. And we pray that we would be women who grow in our understanding of your word and your ways and your wisdom and that we will be women who delight to trust in the Lord Jesus, that we will be women who are wanting to be convicted by the Spirit so that we would trust all the more and not reach for those things that will not bring satisfaction, but reach for you and to seek you. Thank you, Father, for each other and for the encouragement of meeting today. And we commit all these things to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thanks so much, Jenny. Um, that was great. Um, like you said, nothing new under the sun, but such mm-hmm. a great encouragement and also a challenge for us. Um, as you know, living in Josie is a lot like living in Sydney. Mm. Um, you know, everyone has something bigger and better. So as Christian women it's it's mm. a, such a great reminder um to to consider our hearts often and to keep asking Jesus to help us to be satisfied in him so mm. yeah you've got a few hand claps hand clap hand claps there <laughs> um, but thanks so much i'm sure um everyone if they were allowed to speak they would say thanks very much for Helen's not allowing um, that. Helen's not allowing them, no. But um the we are very grateful to you for that great reminder. For us, a great um way to start a Saturday, uh, considering these truths and um for you 
something nice to go to sleep on. <laughs>